met. So his daughter was sick. And, and not with the sort of illness that keeps you bedridden for a couple of days and then you eventually recover. And it's a sickness that puts you in a critical condition. One that has you clinging for your life. And she was only 12. Just 12 years old. Imagine the joy and the potential her life represented. This childhood innocence that was all of a sudden at risk of being lost forever. And so like any father, he was desperate to do something to save his daughter. Go to any doctor, find any medicine, pray any prayer, follow any ritual, anything if it meant it would give his daughter a chance. And so when he first heard the rumors, they sounded crazy, these stories of healing. You see, when you're desperate, you don't worry about what's rational and irrational. You just want something that gives you hope, something that tells you that tomorrow is a possibility. And so he knew that he would have to find this man that could give him such hope. Now, as a leader in the community, he knew what to look for, crowds. Because everywhere this man went, people would gather. They would press in and they would be anxious to hear whatever it is that he had to say. They would want to see what it was that he was going to do next. And so on this particular day, it was just as he expected. He found this crowd, a crowd large enough that had the circumstances been different, probably would have prevented him to get where he needed to be. But there's no denying a father fighting for his child. So he pushed past to every shoulder, made his way past every elbow, maneuvered past every person until he came face to face with Jesus. And in that moment, it was as if all of his desperation, all of his anxiety, all of his fear was too powerful to contain. So he fell at Jesus' feet and he begged and he pleaded for Jesus to come and heal his daughter. And this father was about to discover that Jesus was a man that was moved by compassion. He wasn't restrained to an agenda or a task. He wasn't trying to maintain a schedule. No, Jesus moved with a heart of compassion. And so he agreed. He said he would go with him. But the problem was the crowd. Too many people, too many people pressing in, trying to get closer to Jesus. Some even thinking, if I could just touch his robe, then I could be healed. And so it was there as they were fighting through this mass of people that news reached this father. His daughter had passed. They were too late. Imagine the pain of that moment. Imagine the pain of being that close to this desperate attempt of hope, one final grasp of a chance for his daughter's survival and then having it all crater beneath you. Or maybe it was the pain of regret. This regret that this father had spent these last moments chasing some crazy idea of a miracle rather than sitting by his daughter's side when she breathed her last. The pain of all of his fears realized. The agony of death. 
And it was there in the midst of that pain that Jesus spoke these words and said, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. And she was healed. And I would imagine that initially the man would think he's confused. He doesn't understand what's really happened. Didn't he hear correctly? She's dead. We're too late. Nothing can be done any longer. And yet, before saying anything, he looks, and in Jesus' eyes, he sees that compassion. He sees this power that tells him that maybe, just maybe, not all hope is lost. And so he continues home. Now, when they arrived to the man's house, only a few were allowed in. The parents, James, John, and Peter. These would be the select few that would get to see what unfolded next with Jesus. They entered into the home and it was filled with wailing. The sort of wailing that you would imagine that you find with parents that grieve the loss of a child. So Jesus spoke up and said, stop wailing, she's merely asleep. And again, the confusion, right? again, the frustration, almost laughing at him, saying, don't you understand what has happened? She's not sleeping, she's gone. Then they watched as Jesus didn't remain at a distance, didn't create any separation between him and her lifeless body. No, he came alongside of her and he held her hand and he said, my child. And in those first two words, you get this glimpse into this mysterious reality that somehow Jesus empathized with these parents' pains in ways that we can't even conceive. It wasn't some child. It wasn't a child. It was his child. So he spoke to her. He said, my child, get up. And immediately, at once, without hesitation, without delay, this girl's eyes were opened and she sat up as Jesus directed her towards food. And everyone in the home was astonished. Astonished at this miracle of bringing death to life. And I would imagine at some point in that moment, or maybe it was a few days later, this father began to ask himself this question. Why me? Out of all the people in the crowd, why would he choose me? What have I done to deserve this? And the answer is nothing. Through his desperation and through his hope, this father was astonished at so much more than a miracle, but his life was forever changed by amazing grace. Now, sometime later, Jesus and his disciples were on their way to Jericho. And gathered around the outskirts of the city, these beggars would sit and look and long for any measure of generosity, any expression of kindness that could be extended to them. And this one man found himself in this need. And there could be many assumptions in terms of what put him in that state. Maybe it was poor choices of his past. Maybe it was terrible mistakes of many years ago. But the most likely reason was something that was no fault of his own. He was blind. 
And in those days, being blind would be debilitating for any chance of self-sufficiency. And so there he was, broken, poor, desperate. And on this particular day, there was something different, a different sound in the air, the sound of more feet than normal, the sound of more voices and more murmuring filling the air around him. And so he turned to those next to him and said, what's happening? And they responded to him and said, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He didn't need clarification. He didn't follow up by saying, who? Who is this Jesus? No, he knew. He knew exactly who they were talking about. And he knew this was his chance for hope. And so he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the first that heard this cry were likely those on the outskirts of the crowd, those near the front. And to them, this was unwelcome. To them, this was a disruption, a distraction. So they silenced him, demanding him to be quiet. But their demands compelled him to cry out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. And the crowd stopped. Jesus ordered that the man be brought to him. Imagine sitting there blind, crying out for mercy when all of a sudden these arms swoop in and pick you up and usher you to stand before this figure that you know is Jesus. And Jesus looks at the man and he sees what the world sees. Brokenness, poverty, hunger, blindness. But rather than operate under the assumptions driven by the labels of the world, Jesus asks a simple question. What would you have me do for you, he said. And the man responds and reveals his desires by saying, Lord, I want to see. And that statement was more than just some form of selfish desire. It was a demonstration of faith. A demonstration of faith because he begins with the word Lord. He acknowledges a certain level of sovereignty, a certain authority that Jesus has in his life. It was a statement of surrender. And it demonstrates this faith because he's asking for the impossible. And in so doing, he is stating that he believes that Jesus can do the impossible. He can give sight to the blind. So it was there in this desperation and in this hope that Jesus saw this man's faith and said, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And just like the 12-year-old girl that was brought back from death to life, immediately, all at once, without hesitation, without delay, the man's eyes were opened and he could see. And he praised God. And all those that were around him began to praise God. And this man received more than just his sight. He was given purpose. For he didn't return home to tell his loved ones. He didn't return to some pursuit of a childhood ambition. No, he knew that for the rest of his life, he was destined to follow Jesus. And so as he followed him, I would imagine that at some point, maybe that day, maybe days later, he would find himself asking that question. Why me? Of all the beggars that were gathered there that day, why me? What have I done to deserve this? And the answer was nothing. You can see that through his desperation 
and his hope and his faith. He was astonished at so much more than a miracle, but he was forever changed by God's amazing grace. See, it was memories like these that haunted Peter the most. These memories of, of healing. These memories of death being transformed to life, of sight being given to the blind. These memories of the way that Jesus received the wretched tax collectors or these stories of prodigals that could be found. These were the memories that had inspired Peter in their initial observation to declare when Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? Peter would declare with conviction, you are the Christ. And he believed it. And now these memories haunted him. Because he knew that his life did not reflect his words. That at Jesus' greatest moment of need, Peter ran, abandoned him, left him alone. See, on the night that Jesus was arrested, Peter fled out of fear. But he wanted to maintain some form of proximity. Wanted to stay close enough to see and hear maybe what would transpire next. And so on this cold night, he waited outside the courtyard of the high priest, gathering around a fire with others. And it was there as he was warming himself that one person turned and said, Now aren't you one of this man's disciples? And not wanting to give any attention to the question, Peter likely just stared at the ground and quickly answered, No, I'm not. But the conversation had gained momentum. Someone else chimed in and asked, no, surely you are one of his disciples. And again, Peter, hoping that the subject would change, just simply said, I tell you, I'm not. See, earlier in the evening, when Peter saw Judas's calculated betrayal, he was enraged, angry. So he drew his sword and he struck at the high priest's guard and he slashed his ear only to have Jesus rebuke him and tell him to put away his sword. And then Jesus knelt down and healed the man's ear. See, a relative of this man who had his ear slashed was there in the garden, was also there at the fire as Peter was warming himself. And he spoke up and said, yeah, surely. Didn't I see you earlier tonight in the garden? And now Peter's fears overtook him. Because now there were specifics, now there were details, now there was an eyewitness. And so with greater conviction and greater passion, he said, I assure you, I don't know the man. And as soon as he said it, shame and regret settled upon his heart. The rooster began to crow in the background, ushering back this memory of his final conversation with Jesus. This moment where he had said, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus had turned to him with this voice of skepticism that Peter hadn't normally heard. And he said, will you really? I tell you that before the evening is done, you'll deny me three times. And so that shame overtook him. And he wept bitterly. And he thought, if only I could have a chance, right? Maybe if Peter had been given 
this chance to ask for forgiveness and to explain that he would never let it happen again, to assure Jesus that the next time he would be there. And he wasn't given that opportunity. He wasn't given that chance. Because that arrest turned into a beating. Turned into torture. Moments where these guards and these soldiers would gather around and hit and mock and spit on Jesus. It would turn into wood and nails and the crushing blows of piercing hands and feet. The agony of death. And as Peter observed them take Jesus' lifeless body off the cross and lay it in the tomb, and that stone covered its entrance, Peter's shame was cemented in his heart. Shackled, imprisoned by these feelings of regret, a prison of which he would never escape. And so he was haunted by these memories. Haunted so much that he couldn't sleep. In fact, just a few days later, early in the morning when it was still dark outside, there he sat awake, haunted by these memories. And Mary came in the door. And Mary, Mary brought this <clears throat> news of information. They've taken the body of our Lord, and I don't know where they have put him. But I can't help but imagine that upon hearing that, Peter's initial response was one of anger. That it added to his pain. Why would they do such a thing? Was the beating not enough? Was the crucifixion not enough? Now they had to steal his body. At least moments ago, I had a tomb where I could go and weep and wail and deal with my grief and my shame. And now they've taken even that from me. And so with anger and rage, he got up and he ran. And he ran to the tomb. And he found it just as Mary had described. Empty. And yet there was something off about it. Something that didn't quite meet his expectations. He saw these linens, these cloths that were wrapped around Jesus' head laying there. And perhaps in that moment, he was reminded of these words. Perhaps in the midst of all this anger and all these fears, he heard that voice echo in his heart once again, don't be afraid, just believe. But that belief would have to give way to confusion. And he left there confused, returning to the place where they had been staying. He and the others gathered together in turmoil, still dealing with remorse, still dealing with grief, now dealing with its added confusion, you can hear the questions. Who took the Lord's body and why? Where did they put it? How do we explain these linens that we found? And in the midst of all that turmoil, in the midst of all that chaos, they heard the voice of a Savior. And the first words of that voice were, peace. Peace be with you. And they turned and they saw Jesus. They saw his hands They saw his wounds, and in that moment, every 
ounce of grief was swallowed up in indescribable joy as they begin to take in the fact that Jesus was alive. He had risen. And for many days that followed, Jesus would make these appearances. He would open their minds to everything that was written in the law and the prophets concerning himself. He would remind them to wait for the gift that the Father had promised. He would give them many convincing proofs over and over again that, yes, Jesus had risen indeed. And on one such occasion, there was an exchange between Peter and Jesus that changed everything. For Peter was definitely filled with joy, but he still battled his shame still suffered from his regret. And knowing this, as they had finished eating, Jesus turned to him and said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it carried that similar tone of skepticism that Peter had heard before. He questioned Peter's loyalty, questioning his love. Reminding him of these wounds and the shame, Peter didn't want to go there. And so he said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Hoping that that would convince him. It was true. But would it be enough to convince Jesus? But Jesus responded and said, feed my sheep. A response that suggested to Peter that this time, Peter, words won't be enough. You'll have to show me. You'll have to demonstrate it feeding my sheep. Hoping that the conversation had resolved itself, Peter continued to grab his belongings when all of a sudden Jesus asked again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And again, feeling those wounds, he said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus, continuing his message, said, then tend to my sheep. And now with the wounds bubbling up underneath the surface and hoping that everything could be put behind him, not having to deal with the shame. One final time, Jesus spoke and said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And now the hurt was too much, too, too heavy to carry, and so with emotional response, he says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Jesus said, then feed solidifying his instructions. And there, in that moment, we had this reinstatement, this poetic unfolding of three denials being outweighed by three declarations of love. And Jesus clarifying exactly what it would require. Saying, Peter, you know, when you were younger, you could go where you wanted to go. You could run when it was hard. You could flee when you were afraid, but no longer. Now you're going to be led to places you don't want to go. But follow me. And I assure you in that moment, something solidified in Peter's heart that changed him forever, that gave him the resolve to stand and follow Jesus no matter the cost. And so maybe it was that day, maybe it was many days later, but I assure you that it 
many occasions, Peter would stop and ask himself the question, why me? Why a simple fisherman? Why would he forgive someone who betrayed him as I did? What have I done to deserve this? And the answer is nothing. Through his desperation, through his hope, and through his faith, Peter was astonished by so much more than a miracle. But his life is forever changed by amazing grace. And so when that day of Pentecost came, and that gift that had been promised descended upon those who had gathered there that day, and that Holy Spirit began to fill their lungs and their breath as they spoke in different languages. And those that had gathered from all nations began to hear things in the language of their heart. And they were stirred and amazed and bewildered and perplexed. And they began to ask themselves, what does this mean? And even some of them began to ridicule what was happening. Peter knew that there was no chance he would run. That he would stand and he would answer with a fire burning within his soul. He began to stand up and explain exactly what had been spoken through the prophet Joel. He begged and he pleaded with those that were in his hearing, saying, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you through miracles and wonders and signs that he did through him and among you as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you according to God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, along with wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God has raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it is impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And those that heard Peter declare this that day were cut to the heart because those that had gathered were the same ones that just a few months before had cried out, crucify, crucify. They had not just missed God's plan, they had opposed it. And so now with similar feelings of shame and regret and betrayal that was all too familiar with Peter, they sat there and they were cut to the heart. All of their fears realized. And yet within the message, they heard this word of hope. A reminder to not be afraid, but believe. This message that death had been defeated. The tomb had been emptied of its power. The agony of death was no more. It was for the first time in the course of human history that they heard declared to them good news. And those that heard it that day, I guarantee you, thought to themselves, why me? Why us? Why would he possibly choose us after everything we've done? What did I do to deserve this? And the answer is nothing. Through their desperation and through their hope and through their faith, they were astonished at so much more than a miracle, but their lives were forever changed by God's amazing grace. It was the same grace that existed in the garden at the beginning. The grace that pardoned Noah from judgment. It was the grace that called Abraham into a life of blessing. 
the grace that helped Joseph survive his own betrayal. It was the grace that called Moses to set people free. It was the grace that David found that every failure and every mistake was the grace that inspired the prophets to speak of this day when a child would be born and a son would be given. It was the grace that was expressed at every turn of Jesus' life to everyone that he encountered. And it was the grace that in this moment had spilled out into Jerusalem and then into Judea and Samaria and to the greater regions of the empire. This message of grace began to be whispered from village to village and people to people and family to family, Jew, Gentile, male, female, young and old, it began to be proclaimed everywhere. And what made it so amazing what is that it wasn't just confined to one period of time to be studied about by historians many years later. No, this grace continued from generation to generation, from nation to nation and people to people and culture to culture to the point that, yes, even today, brothers and sisters gather around the world and declare to one another, he is risen, he is risen indeed. It is the message of grace that I assure you, church, extends from generation to generation, and I tell you, it extends to you. And my hope and my prayer is that at some point you would fall on your knees before the Father cry out, why me? Why would you possibly choose me? After everything I've done, what have I done to deserve this? And you'll discover that the answer is nothing. And through hope, through our desperation, and yes, even our faith, we will be astonished by so much more than the miracle of Easter. But all of us together can be forever changed by the sweet sound of God's amazing grace. For he is risen, church. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. There are no words to express the gratitude that we have for your grace. And so I pray that each of us that are here today, Father, would be open and honest before you. God, for many of us, we haven't considered you for quite some time. For many of us, we've been running from you out of fear, ashamed of what we might have to confess or what we might have to face. And I pray that if there are any of those in this room today that are running, Father, that they would stop. That this would be more than a church service for them, Father, that it would be a moment of divine intervention where people are awakened to your grace. Father, for all of us to gather before your throne, 
and to be reminded of just how precious and how sweet the news of Easter is to all of us. May it be greater than our traditions. May it be greater than our rituals that we practice at home. Father, may it change our lives. May it lead us to erupt in praise and follow you wherever you lead. So, Father, today we celebrate you. We give praise to you. We stand amazed by you. And we are not just astonished by some miracle, Father. We are undone by your amazing grace. And so when we sing, Father, here it is a promise. Here it is a commitment. Here it is confession. Here it is hearts that are overwhelmed by your love what you've done for us through Jesus. We give you all the praise and all the glory. In the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen and amen. I want to invite you now to respond. We're going to respond collectively. Obviously, this is a time where we create space for you to come forward. And if you need personal prayer about anything, if you want to join the church, or perhaps you've never truly trusted in the grace that's been offered to you through Jesus, then we want to celebrate that with you. You can come forward and visit with me or someone else to minister up front. But as a church, let us celebrate this story that changes everything. Let us sing of the sweet sound of amazing grace, and not sing for ourselves, not sing for each other, but sing to the Father and the Creator of all who has extended this grace to each of us and has filled this room with praises as we celebrate what God has done. Let's stand together and sing of God's amazing grace.